Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the BC Business Podcast. I'm Nick Rockle, Editor-in-Chief of BC Business Magazine. Who knew that the guy in charge of protecting Canadians' bank deposits plays war games? It's all in a day's work for Peter Routledge, President and CEO of Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation. I spoke with the head of federal agency CDIC about the health of the country's financial system in the wake of COVID-19, the difference between a bank bailout and a bail-in, and why climate change could pose a threat to the banks, credit unions, and trust companies he watches. I'm not sure that everyone knows what the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation does. Can, can you talk about its mandate and also the scale of its insurance coverage? Yeah, sure. So, uh, and thanks for the question and thanks for having me, Nick. Appreciate being here. Um, first thing CDIC does is protect Canadian deposits, bank deposits or deposits at federal credit unions or at trust companies, up to $100,000 per institutions across seven different deposit categories, which means at each institution in theory, you could have up to $700,000 of coverage. Um, and, and the notion and, and the way we, we do deposit insurance in, in Canada means it's very likely that all your uh, money is covered by CDIC if you're listening to this podcast. Um, and that's because we have so many deposit categories and generally our members know how to work their clients to get full coverage. And that's what we want to keep the system safe. So that's the first thing we do. We provide deposit insurance to make that form of funding uh, safe for banks and to reassure Canadians that if they make a bank deposit at a federal uh, institution that's part of CDIC, and you can always tell by looking for a purple lock, uh, either on a website or a branch, uh, their money is safe. And uh, if something happens to that institution, God forbid, uh, their money's covered. We'll, we'll go find the depositor and make sure we pay them their full claim uh, in the event their institution fails. That's the first thing we do. The second thing we do, uh, big thing we do, uh, and it flows from the first is, we keep an eye on our members. We don't regulate them. We're not the superintendent or the regulator of the banks, the office of the superintendent of financial institutions is. But we keep an eye on our members. And if they start down the path to non-viability or failures, more common phrase for it, uh, we're ready and we act as resolution authority. And our job in that case is to make sure that if, if an institution in our membership is approaching non-viability. Uh, we make that as non-disruptive non -disruptive to the financial system as possible. Uh, and the notion is we protect depositors, we promote financial stability. And, and the pandemic has had a major impact on the Canadian economy. How concerned are you about your member banks as a result of that? And, and how safe are those deposits as we speak today? Oh, I'm going to ask you the second question first. No matter what happens to our member institutions, Canadians' insured deposits are safe. No one's ever lost a dime uh, on, an, uh, on a deposit insured by CDIC in our 54 years of existence. So deposits safe no matter what happens. Uh, now to the second or the first part of your question, which is the safety of our, our, our membership, which is 85 uh, member institutions across the country. 
Uh, we headed in pre-pandemic, I would say our capital and liquidity buffers uh, across our membership were quite strong and we felt quite good about uh, the resiliency of the system before the pandemic. The, the pandemic hits about a year ago and uh, that was a pretty huge challenge to that assumption, to that presumption that our system was resilient. And we were, to be uh, honest, very watchful and, and concerned about uh, what might happen in the economy and how that might impact our member institutions. And it turns out over the course of the last year, um, because of the resilience of the Canadian economy, because uh, of the exceptional both fiscal and monetary support that flowed into the system in the spring and summer of last year, uh, our membership operated through the pandemic quite, uh, quite well. Um, last year, they built additional loan loss buffers uh, just in case. And this year, it looks like they're not using them to the extent we expected. So the, uh, the outcome and the shock to the system is much less than we anticipated going back a year. Thanks. And from what I understand, there hasn't been a, a failure of a federal financial institution in some time. Uh, given that, what do you and your colleagues uh, do all day at, uh, at CDRC? It's, what does a typical day look like? It's a good question. So we've, the last bank failure, uh, or rather it was a trust company uh, failure, uh, was in 1996 in Calgary, a Security Home Mortgage Corporation. Uh, it was a small institution, only about $40 million in assets. That's the last one we did. Uh, and that was the 43rd. Uh, and so we're, we're in this 25-year period where uh, we haven't had a failure. There have been times when, uh, you know, uh, members worry us a little bit more than normal, and we, we try and uh, get ready. But despite having to get ready a couple of times uh, uh, over the last 25 years, uh, we haven't adapted, And so there are two things you can do. And, and I like to sort of explain CDAC as kind of like, a, you know, the, the, the firehouse, you know, waiting for a fire in the neighborhood. And uh, we haven't had the fire alarm go off for, for quite some time. So what, what does a, a good firehouse captain do? Uh, he does two things. Uh, he calls up his neighboring firehouses and who may have had to put out fires and tries to learn from them. And so we've been quite active with our uh, peers globally and mo more specifically in the United States where uh, you know, the Americans have experienced over 500 um, failures since uh, the financial crisis. So we try and learn what we can from them and we'll send people down to the United States for courses and how to do bank resolutions and all that. And then the second thing we, we've uh, really ticked up in the past year and a half is war gaming or simulations. We pretend bad things happen and we put ourselves through uh, an exercise uh, to try and think through what we might, what decisions we might have to make uh, uh, in the event something actually happens. And the, the idea there is that's a pretend or simulation, simulated world and making mistakes in that world is quite inexpensive because it's not real. We'd rather make mistakes there than in, in the real world. Uh, and those, those war games can run, you know, over a lunch hour via tabletop meeting where we just walk through a, a scenario and talk it out all the way to three, four day intense simulation. They're 
and we in, in that simulation, we seek help from third parties who might be able to bring a special twist or challenge us in a way we can't think of ourselves. And uh, we do that with CDIC, we do it with our board of directors, and we do that with our financial safety net partners like the Office of the Superintendent of Financial S uh, Institutions, the Bank of Canada, Department of Finance, the uh, Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. Yeah, and so if the real thing does happen, what, what can CDIC do to stem yeah. the damage? Yeah, so a number of things, and, and let me kind of paint the, the picture. It's not as if we wake up one day and a bank has failed and we have to snap into action. Because we're tightly uh, tied into the financial uh, safety net system, the federal financial safety net system, we get early warnings. And we like to think of a member that starts to get into trouble as in a runway. So there's hopefully an extended period and that runway is long and makes it easier, but usually there's a runway leading up to the point of non-viability where an institution fails. Uh, early on in a runway, uh, we can invite ourselves into the boardroom of a troubled member and do what we call special exams, where we can uh, get much more detail in, into the financial uh, condition of a member. And that helps us plan out decision-making if, if the situation deteriorates from that particular early in the runway. As we move further and further into the runway, there are things we can do and um, our act Everything we do is, is governed by what's called the CDIC Act, which is parliament saying, here's your mandate and here's what you can do within the law. And we stay within the confines of our act. Uh, our act gives us two ways to react to a troubled member, before failure or before the point of non-viability and after. So before failure, uh, we can... Uh, take actions uh, in the same manner a senior creditor or a senior lender to a company would. We can, we, can, um, we can make loans to the company. We could invest equity in the company. We could help facilitate a sale of the troubled bank or troubled financial institution to another healthier financial institution. Uh, all those things we can um, uh, execute before the point of non-viability. Uh, it requires a willing counterparty or willing counterparties, so we don't control that. Uh, but it, it gives us some flexibility to act early. And in acting early, we lessen the impact of financial instability. And we tend to minimize the costs to the CDIC fund of, act of, uh, of failure. If there's nothing available or nothing attractive, after the point of non-viability, other more significant powers open up. So we can uh, uh, put that institution into a wind-up and restructuring, in which case it basically liquidates its assets and pays out its creditors. Now, in that scenario, we immediately pay depositors, insured depositors, their insured amounts in full. So they're fine, and we accept the losses that come from that. Other things we can do, we can force the sale of an institution, uh, an unhealthy institution to a healthy institution. We can create something called a bridge bank where we lift the, the good liabilities and the good assets out of the bank, move them into a new institution that's healthier, perhaps sell it off or, or send it off it back into the private sector. 
Um, and then for a specific type of institution, which we call systemically important banks, we can recapitalize through particular instruments in, on their balance sheet. And that's a longer description, but that sort of gives you an idea of what we can do after the point of non-viability. Yeah, so, so is the last thing you described basically a bank bailout? People always- so, the, so for the systemically, we don't like to call it bailout. <laughs> uh, we'll, we like to call it bail-in. And so let me explain uh, the distinction. From the financial crisis, people labeled actions taken by uh, governmental authorities as bailout because in some form or fashion, they were adding capital to a troubled institution or an institution that was near failure. And, and that capital came from the taxpayer and that's a bailout. And that's, we've built a system to uh, not to do that, to prevent us, to, to, to prevent that from happening. Bail-in is we ask our systemically important banks in particular to issue uh, liabilities uh, that convert to common equity if the bank becomes non-viable. So one way to think about it is uh, the typical systemically important bank in Canada, and there are six of them, have about 12% equity cushion. Uh, and, and that is in the form of tangible common equity. On top of that, protecting depositors, protecting CDIC, protecting uh, any third party who might come in and add capital, is, a, is another give or take 10 to 12% of liabilities or capital instruments that will convert into common if the superintendent deems that institution non-viable. That's the bail-in. It, it's, it, it's a de facto automatic investment of equity into a troubled bank that recapitalizes the bank at no cost to the taxpayer. And the cool thing about it, the, the real cool thing about it is all those instruments that'll convert, they've already been issued and the private sector investors who purchased them or have invested in the institution know in advance they've accepted that risk. And so when they get converted into common equity in that very, very rare condition, they will have been paid before the fact for accepting that risk. Uh, and in that way, that's why we call it bail-in. The institution gets recapitalized without any injection of public funds. And CDIC is the resolution authority that would oversee that. Thanks. What about the scenario, uh, the so-called run on the bank, where you have a failing institution where shareholders and depositors are, are bolting for the exits? And yeah. What's, what happens there? What's, what's, um, what are your options? And yeah. So you're, you're referring to a classic run on the bank. Uh, first of all, on shareholders, we don't protect shareholders. <laughs> They're, uh, they own shares in the banks as private investors and, and more power to them. And they suffer the ups and downs of valuation changes. For depositors, I mean, the first thing we do is before a run, can we make sure that the insurance is in place and we tell people about it so they know they're protected. So they know, you know, if I have up to 100,000 in deposits across any seven categories at a financial institution, I'm, my money's protected. I'm gonna get paid back in full if, if the unforeseeable happens. So that's the first thing we do. If that's not enough, if there is a true run on the bank, it is very likely we will, if the superintendent would, would come to a determination of non-viability and then we would turn into, and then our tools would 
um, we, we could start to use our tools to stabilize the situation. And that's what we do pretty quickly. Now runs in Canadian in the Canadian banking system are very rare because generally speaking, people know their deposits are covered and they don't react in a, a panicky fashion to bad financial news. And we really did see that through the, through the pandemic. Um, not only did deposits sort of stay stable early in the pandemic, but then uh, our membership's deposit funding, and then by that I specifically mean insured deposit funding, we believe has spiked uh, at a growth rate above, well above historic norms. So to give you some numbers around that, deposits that we insure generally grow with nominal GDP, so around four to 5% a year. And since the pandemic, we've seen deposit growth annualized at about 10% a year. Thanks. And on a related note, social media has made it easier and easier to spread misinformation and often outright lies. If there was a rumor about a bank failure that let's say it caught fire on Twitter, what tools do you have at your disposal to, to stop people from panicking or at least to, to help them calm down? Um, well, we, we, we have the same tools uh, at our disposal as folks who may put out misinformation have. We have access to social media, uh, we have access to regular mainstream media. And over the last couple of years, we've, we've really experimented with the mix between those two forms of media to get our message out. So let me give you an example of uh, what we did. We actually didn't find too much mi misinformation in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic onset March, April last year, but we noticed people got really worried. So in a, what we did in both our social media and our our mainstream or television advertising media uh, is quadrupled our presence in those platforms for about three months. And so we, we quadrupled the amount of times people would see us and engage with us. Um, so, uh, and that worked and we generally, the, or I don't know if it was the sole, it certainly wasn't the sole uh, responsible factor for the return to uh, less worried state amongst Canadians, but it helped. And we saw that in our awareness numbers. Um, if we ever got hit with, or one of our members uh, or a group of our members got hit with misinformation, and whether in any media platform and misinformation that misstated the safety of Canadian insured deposits, you can rest assured we have ample budget to get our message out in any social media or mainstream media platform available to us. Give you an example, or, or to sort of put some numbers around it, we typically spend around six to 7 million in public awareness activities and that in, on all forms of media. Um, our revenues uh, next year will be north of 800 million. So we have, we have ample ammunition uh, uh, in the till that we, we would look to uh, you know, aggressively use to counter any information that suggested Canadian insured deposits weren't money good and safe. Yeah, sounds like it. And wh what about uh, what about depositors? What sort of mood are they in? If you think about the pandemic's impact on people's working situation, their you know their bank balances, how are they behaving differently than they were, let's say, you know, a year year and a half ago? So about a year ago. Uh, our surveys were telling us they were um, uh, 
cautiously optimistic. So they, they believe the risk to the financial system uh, was higher. They believe the risk to, to Canadian uh, deposit-taking institutions was higher as a result of the pandemic, but they were hanging in. They were confident in the safety of their deposits. Um, but their, their worry was you know, quite a bit higher than normal. It's since trended back. It's, it's still higher than it was before pandemic in terms of worry about the financial system, but it's much lower than it was a year ago. So folks kind of got worried, thought about it, and said, I think we're okay, we're safe. And now they're feeling a little less worried about it. So that's one sort of way to measure the reaction. The other way to measure the reaction is to look at what's happened in the deposit system. And between, uh, I think folks just maybe spending a little less because they were uncertain about the economic future between, um, not being able to spend a lot more because you were locked in your house and, and not going out. And the uh, amount of uh, fiscal support in the system, and remember the CERB and the CEWS, et cetera, all those facilities did add cash into the system. That money flowed into bank deposits by and large. Uh, and that money is still there. So we had a, a jump in, in deposits sort of in the first four to six months after the onset of the pandemic. Uh, growth rates now are back to more normalized levels, but they haven't dipped. So there's still a, a whole lot of uh, savings in the form of bank deposits in the system right now. And folks aren't feeling so great that they're going out and spending it, um, but uh, they're not pulling it out and we don't detect any real concerns about the safety of those deposits. In fact people feel more safe than they did a year ago. That's good to know. And, and then last summer, you, you expressed support when one of your colleagues at another federal agency, uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, mm -hmm. President CEO Evan Siddle, came out and, and spoke out against uh, offering mortgages to, you know, I guess, you know, high, high ratio mortgages to over leveraged uh, home buyers. And then if we look at mortgage lending, it seems to be at a record. Uh, last year, it got up to 180 billion as of November, uh, national household borrowing. And that's, that keeps um, rising above uh, gross income. What potential risk does unsustainable mortgage debt pose for Canadian financial institutions? Um, unchecked. Uh, it could pose quite a significant risk to the system, right? Um, a sudden uh, increase in valuations followed by a sudden decrease is generally quite destabilizing to the financial system. And, and by, and by uh, increase in valuations, I mean increase in residential real estate, sudden uptick for a couple of years followed by a sudden down, significant downtick for another couple of years, pretty destabilized. Um, with Mr. Siddall and, the, and his tweet, and then my subsequent tweet, uh, uh, throwing CDIC's gratitude his way for, for stepping up for financial uh, stability. Um, it, he was leaning against that, in my judgment, and I don't want to speak for him, so I don't. I'm just, my interpretation was he was leaning against the animal spirits of the housing market in a responsible way. And why did CDIC's CEO sort of say, hey, thanks for stepping up that way? You know, at the end of the day, we, CDIC, because we provide deposit insurance, 
you know, we step into the shoes of depositors, pay them off, and then we have the credit risk associated with an institution that might get into trouble. So there was a self-interested motivation behind um, the action at, uh, or the tweet I sent out, which was, I've got credit risk to Canadian deposit-taking institutions. And you know, any responsible uh, effort to tame the more uh, animal spirits of the housing market is good for CDIC's risk position. Uh, and so that there was a systemic uh, motivation, you know, trying to get systemic stability, uh, try to remind ourselves that we need to be cautious and prudent around the housing market. Uh, and that's better for the system overall. And that was part of the motivation. The other motivation is CDIC holds the bag on a lot of credit risk and a stable housing market is good for CDIC. And because we're an agent of the crown, it's good for the for the sovereign financial, for, for the finances of the sovereign. Yeah, thanks. I have a question too about, uh, a couple of questions about cryptocurrency. So investors are, mm -hmm. are piling into these currencies, investors of all kinds, but CDIC doesn't cover digital currency. I'm wondering why, why that is and what would it take for things to change? Good question. Um, so CDIC, uh, up until about a year ago, um, only insured deposits denominated in Canadian dollars. Um, but as the world globalized and more Canadians decided to hold their deposits in currencies denominated in foreign currencies, US dollars or euros or what have you, um, the government of the day elected to widen our coverage to include deposits denominated in foreign currencies. And they were saying, de facto, as Canadians hold uh, their uh, savings in deposits denominated in foreign currency, we'd like that to be included within the, the protective net provided by CDIC. And so that was an affirmative policy choice to the government of the day. That's how it happens. Uh, we give governments our fearless advice, but we're not elected. Parliament is elected, reflects the sovereign will of the people. So we, we take orders from them, not the other way around. If cryptocurrency gains wider acceptance, that'll be a policy matter for the federal government to determine. We'll weigh in with our technical advice on uh, financial stability and deposit protection. Uh, and we'll do that in a, in a, in a manner in keeping with uh, the notion of, of uh, cabinet secrecy. Uh, but that is an outstanding policy question that uh, if cryptocurrencies become more prevalent, that the government of the day may want to deal with. And then besides cryptocurrency, what other shifts or innovations in financial markets are you watching as part of your job? Um, increasingly uh, really interested in uh, all the work done around um, the, the financial exposure related to climate change. And uh, there's an outstanding study done in Canada, uh, sort of orchestrated by the Department of Finance and, and led by a, a few people, one of whom was uh, the now governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklin. Uh, and it pointed out that 
climate change will shift uh, the allocation of capital across the globe. And as that happens, the relative value of capital assets will change. Uh, and what's interesting for us in, in, uh, in uh, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions is really on point on this, is to, to understand the financial risks to our membership that might flow from that. It's very uh, you know, cutting edge and, and uh, what you're doing when you're trying to think through that is think through uh, uh, tremendous uncertainty and known unknown. We don't really know the full financial impact of climate change on capital markets, but it's important to start thinking about it now and to start asking ourselves, do we have the buffers to absorb the changes that might flow from relative valuations of assets. That's another critical area along with you know, FinTech. Uh, I would say, uh, or uh, along with cryptocurrencies, a, a third one is financial technology companies or FinTechs. Uh, they're innovating in the financial services space and we want our product to keep up with that innovation. And so we're doing a lot of thinking and consulting with industry on, okay, what sort of new products might get developed and uh, how would a deposit insurance product be supportive of creating more value through that in innovation for Canadians? Yeah, and Canada has some, some, some pretty enterprising FinTech companies in all parts of the country. Yeah, we have a very profitable, stable, resilient financial system that tends to attract innovation capital. Uh, and our job isn't to fuel or retard that innovation capital. Our, our job is to make sure that our product is uh, valuable to Canadians, regardless of how they choose to consume deposit products. And then if you look at Canada, not all big financial institutions are CDIC members. For example, we've got, uh, here in BC, we've got Van City, which manages uh, yeah. more than $28 billion in assets. What do you say to those firms about uh, deposit safety? So, uh, and that's a great question. There, there are two deposit-taking systems uh, in Canada. There is the provincial systems, there are 10 of them, uh, regulated by the provinces, and those are credit unions or case populaires in, in parts of Canada that are uh, predominantly French. Um, and then we talk to the uh, uh, CDIC equivalents in each province quite regularly. So in BC, there's the BC FSA. We talk to those colleagues quite regularly. And we do that across the province. In our, and, and I think it's, uh, I think if you ask deposit insurer in, uh, in British Columbia or Ontario or Quebec, uh, they'd say the same thing that I'm about to say, which is we protect the same people. If you're a client or a customer at a credit union, you may well be a, also a provincial credit union. You may well also be a member or a client to a CDSC insured member. We protect the same Canadians. And so our, you know, and, and because we do that and because we know actions that CDIC takes could influence what happens in, a provincial deposit taking system and vice versa, we talk to each other. And so we've been, uh, uh, we have an, an annual meeting that we do uh, uh, just by habit. 
Uh, and then since the onset of the pandemic, we've been uh, reaching out and talking to our, our colleagues in the de provincial deposit protection sphere uh, quarterly or semi-annually, depending on uh, the, the time of those, those good folks. And so our, our, we just try and protect everyone. Now it's important for Canadians to, uh, if, if they, uh, whether, wherever they choose to make their deposits to understand uh, where and in what form their deposit insurance comes. There are differences between the protection we provide and the rules we provide in certain provinces. Um, the overall purpose is the same, is to protect Canadians' hard-earned savings, whether you know, it's a BC Credit Union or a, or a, a federal financial institution. We, we try and balance, uh, or we try and uh, provide fundamentally uh, similar protection, but there are important details and important differences. Uh, you can come to our website to understand our coverage a bit better. Uh, if you're in British Columbia, you can go to the BCFSA's website to understand the uh, deposit uh, insurance protection you get uh, from provincial authorities. And I encourage everyone to, where, wherever you bank, figure out who provides the deposit insurance and go take 10 minutes and just do a quick read to make sure you understand what it is. And finally, what keeps you up at night as we try to find our way out of this pandemic? Um, I'd say the thing that's probably most striking right now is uh, just the diversity of potential outcomes. Um, wherever you are in the economic cycle, there's always a, you know, an upside and a downside. Um, right now, the, there's, you know, we're, we're dealing with um, a, an onset of uh, more, uh, more virulent uh, strains of the coronavirus and you worry about, well, there'll be another shutdown. What will be the economic impact of that? And that could be significant. On the other hand, the economy is outperforming even the most optimistic expectations of six to 12 months ago. And there's no evidence that that, that basic outcome is changing. Uh, you look at the bank results that have come out in the last week, it's happy days. Things are going really well. And so the, what keeps me up is, is uh, I'm pretty optimistic. I think basically the story of the pandemic is the economic resiliency of Canada and of the financial system. Uh, I'm, I'm like 80% uh, confident that that's going to be the story. I'm not paid to worry about that. I'm paid to worry about the 20% downside. And so that's what keeps me up at night is are we sure God you know, as the probability we have a downside scenario recedes, that makes me more concerned that CDIC is ready just in case. And so our war gaming or simulations uh, were ticking up this year. Uh, we're increasing our outreach to our provincial counterparties just so we're dialed in and lined up with each other. We increasing our, we're increasing our, our consultations and, and conversations with uh, our partners in the federal financial safety net. Um, I'd much rather do a whole lot of work that proved to be unnecessary, uh, but uh, then, you know, count on my 80% confidence level that things are going to be great.